Good morning. Let's open with a word of prayer. Thanks for the time, Lord, that we can gather together and approach your throne through the name of your son, Jesus. Thank you for your great love that sent him to the cross to die in our place. Jesus, thank you for the obedience that you had to the Father to suffer his wrath that we would never have. Now, Holy Spirit, we appeal to you that you would inhabit both the speaker and the hearer, that you would address your people through the proclamation of your word, and that we might be edified, that we might grow, that we might be changed. The glory of your name we pray to you. We've all had those experiences where, you know, that you're disappointed because what was advertised is not what you actually got. You know, like a picture of a hamburger, a Big Mac picture looks much different than when you unwrap it. It looks way different than that. Um, when I first um, met some people during COVID, I met them with their mask on. And Emile Glass was one of those people that I met during COVID, and I had never seen her without her mask on. And so my face painted a picture of what she looked like under her mask. And then the first time I saw her without the mask, I didn't recognize her, though we'd been friends for, what, a couple of years by that time, Camille? And, but we all have those, those expectations of what things are going to be like, and they turn out to be different than, than reality. When I was a kid for Christmas, I had asked my parents to buy me a bicycle uh, for Christmas. And I had made it very clear what kind of a bicycle I wanted. I wanted a red five-speed Schwinn Stingray. Not with the tassels like Dave's, though. At <laughs> 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 any rate, what I got was a, my, my dad bought a Raleigh three-speed English racer, which, although it was a nice bike, you know, and it was a good segue to a, a real bike, it, it wasn't, a, it, it wasn't a, a Schwinn Stingray, right? It was, it was different than that. There's a, a guy by the name of Patrick McManus who grew up in North Idaho in Sandpoint, and when he was growing up, he wanted and expected that his mom was going to buy him a hunting rifle for his birthday, and so he wrote, just a few days short of eternity, my 14th birthday finally arrived. I had expected to come, I had expected it to come bearing as a gift one 30-30 rifle, which I had dropped approximately 30,000 hints to my family. No rifle. I could tell from the shapes of the packages. They were all shaped like school clothes. Something's, <laughs> something seems to be missing here, I said, nervously ripping open a pack of jockey shorts. You're sure you didn't forget to leave one of my presents in the closet? No, my mom said, the whole kitten caboodle's right there in front of you. I was uh, sort of expecting a 30-30 rifle. Oh, mom said, well, if you want a rifle, you're just going to have to go get yourself a job and earn enough money to buy one. It was not unusual in those days for parents to say brutal things like that to their children. <laughs> there were no laws back then to prevent parents from saying no, and worse yet, meaning no. Life was hard for a kid. Still couldn't believe that my mother was actually suggesting that her only son go out and find a job. Naturally, I had heard about work. My family was always talking about it within range of my hearing, and as far as I could tell, seemed generally to be in favor of it. I don't know why. Nothing, ever, nothing I ever heard about work made it seem very appealing. 
Still, if I wanted to hunt deer that coming fall, I would need a rifle. On the other hand, if I got a job, that would ruin my summer and leave me only mornings and evenings and weekends to fish. And at best, I might be able to get some fishing in on days I was too sick to work. I weighed, I weighed my need for the rifle against a ruined summer and after much long and painful thought, arrived at a distasteful decision to have to borrow a rifle. Then as now, people did not stand in line to loan out their rifles to beginning hunters or to anyone else for that matter. Rancid Crabtree seemed to me to be the best prospect for the loan of a rifle. By the way, Rancid, I said to him casually one day, how about loaning me your 30-30 for deer season this year? Rancid's face erupted in a, in a beautiful snaggletooth grin and he said, that's a good one. Make that up yourself or someone tell you. It's no joke, I said, I need a deer rifle, and I don't see why you couldn't loan me your 30-30. Well, I would loan it to you, except for one thing, said Rancid Crabtree, and that is, I don't want to. <laughs> he did finally manage to convince an Indian by the name of Pinto Jack to loan him an antique rifle. Pinto Jack says, it's a single shot, and it kicks a bit, but you're welcome to it. So. He ends up getting his hunting rifle, but it was not what he was expecting. That year he went out to, for hunting deer with the single shot from, from uh, Pinto Jack. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me actually to where we left off last week, but we're going to turn to the beginning of the second book of Thessalonians, Second um, Thessalonians 1.1. 1, 1. So we begin a book today picking up where we left off in a second letter. And so I guess the natural question is why a second letter? Probably because the first letter didn't accomplish everything Paul wanted to uh, address, everything that he'd hoped to. Uh, is that me, Cracklin? Um, at any rate, um, in this book, there's no new subjects that are introduced. The central issue is that of errors in regard to their view of the parousia. Remember, parousia was a technical term for an official visit. Uh, a king would come to a, a town and the dignitaries would leave the town and go out and greet the king and bring him back. So, if anything, there's more information and things seem to have gotten worse than, than, worth, than they were during First Thessalonians' letter. Um, apparently, some false had come into the church, perhaps even uh, assuming that Paul had written this false teaching. And so Paul needs to address the, the issue here. Now, the, the uh, second letter of Thessalonians is probably written just a few months at most after the first book of Thessalonians. So what had happened was, remember, Paul, Silas, and Timothy had come through Thessalonica, had planted the church, had stayed there for a couple months, and moved on south. <coughs> Paul is now in Corinth. He sends Timothy back up to Thessalonica to help the church out. Timothy comes back with information about how the church is going. Paul writes the first letter of Thessalonians, and he sends Timothy back up there. After a short stay in Thessalonica, Timothy comes back again and tells Paul how things are going, and that's what prompts Paul to write this second letter just a, um, a short time, weeks or months after the, the first letter has been written. So Paul is writing. Am I doing something that makes that noise? No, I'm not brushing against it. This one? 
You say yes, but you're the only one that can hear that. <laughs> and at any rate, so Paul's writing in response to what Timothy has told him about what's going on in Thessalonica now. And that brings us to the first verse of the second book of Thessalonians. And 2 Thessalonians 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because, you, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. We don't have to spend a lot of time in here because basically this is the same introduction he gave in the first book or the first letter of Thessalonians. He, he associates the same uh, three missionaries that were there that planted the church, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. He describes the church basically in the same way, indicating that it owes its existence to the blessing of God the Father and God the Son. He sends them a greeting which is more theological than conventional. He names those three uh, greatest gifts the, the, of grace and peace uh, that he's alluding to that triad of graces, great, of faith, hope, and love. And uh, he begins with this heartfelt thanksgiving to God for the church. Uh, he thanks God for, the, um, for their, these graces being evident in his life. And in both um, letters, we see the qualities of God's activity at work in his people. So that's the entire introduction. We've covered it before, so we won't remain there. Verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in a flaming fire, inflicted, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on the day to be glorified in his saints, to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling, may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So um, he addresses the success of the Thessalonians, but he's not flattering them. He says that the, their success as a church is evidence of God's grace. He addresses their sufferings, but instead of complaining for them, he uses that as an opportunity to express that this is evidence for God's justice. And he goes on to give them assurance of God's righteousness that in the end there will be justice because God will bring judgment, which naturally then prompts three questions for them and for us. And the three questions are, well, when is this going to happen? Who's going to be judged or who's going to be the object of his judgment? Um, the third question is, what form of judgment or punishment does this take place? So first he asks, um, he addresses when is God going to bring this judgment? When are all these wrongs going to be righted? When is um, justice going to imbalance, or going to 
cure the imbalance of human experience? And the answer is, verse 7, this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Now, you remember that before, um, in 1 Thessalonians 4, maybe around 15, 14 or 15, when we talk about this, this arrival, this revealing of the Lord Jesus, he uses the word parousia, and I just told you that's an official, the language of an official visit of a dignitary, but here he's not using the word parousia for official visit. He's now substituted this with the word apocalypsis, which is revealing or unveiling, taking the veil away so that what is there can be seen, and he's affirming that um, almost identically in both letters. So in 1 Thessalonians uh, 4, 15 and 16, he says the Lord himself will come down from heaven. And in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. So according to that, we can say three things about this revelation, this appealing, this unveiling, and that is that it is personal, it is visible, and it is glorious. Keep your right hand away from your pocket. It's a loose connection. I was trying to be subtle. I don't think so, Dave. All right, so it's personal, it's visible, and it's glorious. So we know that it's personal because he says the Lord Jesus himself will come, not, not someone else, the, the same Lord Jesus who lived, who died, who ascended to heaven. They saw him. The same Lord Jesus who was ascended to heaven is the same one that's going to come back. It's going to be visible. He tells us that when he comes again, it... it uh, it, it's going to be glorious with, with great strength and power and majesty as opposed to his first visitation, his first advent, which was in his weakness and obscurity. Um, this is going to be very public and very magnificent. Um, it, it's, it's quite glorious. Now, the details are a little bit different. Uh, for instance, in the first book, first letter, when Jesus appears, he tells us that he comes with a loud command the voice of an archangel, the trumpet call of God. Again, he's, he's reminding us this is not a secret appearance. Everyone's going to see it. This time, he tells us that he comes with blazing fire, with, with the, um, this holy presence of God. And there's a difference here in the retinue, the people who come with him. In 1 Thessalonians um, chapter 4, verse 14, when he comes, he comes uh, with... The, the Christian dead who are going to come with him from heaven to earth. This time he's, he mentions that he comes with the powerful angels, the mighty angels accompanying him. In uh, 1 Thessalonians 3.13, he talks about all the holy ones. So, so that gives us a little fill-in detail. Uh, he comes with the mighty angels and with the Christian dead who are in his presence now. So there's a great retinue in this glorious train, I don't mean a choo-choo train, the, the train of, of his, his arrival when he comes. And it's quite clear then that his coming is very glorious. So there's a reality which continues to exist that we can't see now because there is a veil obscuring his glory um, from us. And that, 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 that 
obscuring veil is, is taken away. So over and over again, we're told that this parousia, this, this arrival of Jesus is not some sideshow event. Remember, Jesus says, if they say to you, look, look, here he is, he's inside, he's out, in, he's out in the wilderness, don't believe them, don't listen to him, don't go. It's not a sideshow event. This is a, an event which is exceedingly awe-inspiring. It is glorious. It is, there's this cosmic splendor. Jesus says, as lightning flashes from the east to the west, it lights up the whole sky. Everyone is going to be aware of that. Isaiah chapter... 40, I don't remember what verse says, the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all the people will see it. That's the event that we're talking about. Not a secret event, a very glorious, a very public event takes place. So that brings us to the second question, who are those who are going to be punished? Who are those who are going to have judgment against them? In verse 8, he says he will punish those who do not know God, who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in the first chapter, or excuse me, in the first book, um, we were told that that those who don't um, obey are those uh, Gentiles who disbelieve in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he mentions the Jews who actually had resisted the uh, evangelization of Thessalonica and every place else that they had gone to uh, witness that the Jews were standing against them. And so. Some commentators have come to the conclusion since in the first book he names these two groups, the Gentile non-believers and the Jews resisting, that here he's talking about two different kinds of people. Of course, the original readers of this letter would not have made that connection. They don't see a distinction between unbelieving Jews and unbelieving Gentiles. So probably Paul is not meaning two different groups, but just unbelievers in, in general because of their deliberate rejection of the knowledge of God and um, his message of the gospel in Christ Jesus. So we have in the English Revised Bible, um, it, it kind of brings out their willfulness in, 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 in that it says that those who refuse to acknowledge God and who will not obey the gospel. So that's who, that's who will be judged when he comes. Now, the particular interest to us is what will their judgment be? And to that, we verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and, the and from the glory of his might. And the point is that sinners who reject Christ, who reject the offer of salvation, are going to suffer eternal punishment, eternal condemnation. The, the Bible's teaching on hell is awful. It is very dreadful. It is so awful that many devout Christians struggle with this whole concept of e eternal damnation, um, particularly the e emphasis on eternal. We really have problems with the fact that it's eternal. Because, you know, even if you imagine the worst possible crime would have a, a limit on its punishment, uh, Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, someone like that, they deserve more punishment than Terry Johnson, but not infinite punishment. There's got to be some limitations on the amount of punishment. So we have problems with that. You know, why is punishment eternal? Well, part of the reason is the fact that you don't stop sinning when you go to hell, and you don't stop hating God when you go to hell. There's this ongoing hatred of God. This is ongoing a rebellion. But at any rate, 
the, the term eternal punishment is the same word eternal as eternal life. So just as you, the redeemed, live eternally in God's grace, those who reject him live eternally in God's wrath. Now, we, again, we have problems with that. And so some Christians have invented this idea that eventually everybody is going to be saved. We call that universalism, Christian universalism. And the idea is basically this, if God is holy, he has to punish sin, he has to deal with it. But um, because God is love, ultimately his love overcomes his wrath, and in the end everybody gets saved. And nobody's going to spend eternity in hell, that God's love eventually wins through and everyone enters into this blessedness of heaven. This view was advanced by Rob Bell, who wrote the book Love Wins. And in it, he states that, uh, um, uh, that the Bible asserts, I, I quote, the belief that given enough time, everybody will turn to God and find themselves in the joy and peace of God's presence. The love of God will melt every heart, and even the most depraved sinner will eventually give up their resistance and turn to God. So according to Bell, there are second chances for everyone after they die. And the sooner or later, everyone gets to escape hell and spend eternity with heaven. See, there's only one problem with Christian universalism, that being that the Bible categorically denies it. Other than that, you know, the Bible's very clear that that's not true. The other problem that most of us have is not so much with the eternality of it, but who says so? I mean, this whole teaching of hell largely comes from the lips of Jesus, not from Calvin, not from Augustine, not from Paul. It comes from Jesus. And as a consequence of that, it strains many Christians' loyalty even to the teaching of Christ. It pushes our limits on how far we can believe him because we want to minimize what he has to say about hell or soften it or sidestep it. Now, verse 9 seems to say that they will exist apart from the presence of God. Well, I have heard and I have probably said myself in my early years of being a Christian that hell is separation from God, that you choose to not want God now and hell is the natural consequence of that and you will, since you don't want God now, you won't have God through eternity. And so you, we, I have told people that hell is this eternal separation from God. You know, that's no big deal to somebody who hates God. They want nothing more to be than to be separated from God. They don't want God in their life now. It's no great punishment to say you can, you can escape God um, forever. The, the problem of hell is not the separation from God. The problem with hell is that it is the presence of God in the fullness of that if God is ubiquitous and omnipresent and omnipotent, he's everywhere and all-powerful, then he's not not in hell. He is there, but not in love. He is there in eternal judgment and wrath. Verse 9 says that they will suffer away from the glory of his presence, or the glory meaning his, his favor, his love, his compassion, his, 
his uh, peace, his joy, that aspect of God's glory, they will never know. What they will know through eternity is the aspect of God's wrath, his ongoing wrath against rebellion. And conversely, that's something you will never know. No matter how you try to analyze hell, it's, you know, we're stuck with the idea that eternal punishment seems cruel and unusual to us. But God is not capable of being cruel. And our concept of cruelness comes from the idea that we think that the sentence or the punishment is uh, greater than the, or too harsh or, or more severe than the crime deserves. And so we make a judgment that we then want to impose on God and say, if God, if you were just, you would do what I would do. You would judge them the way I judge them. So cruelty is not a characteristic of God, nor is injustice, because God is incapable of inflicting an, unpunish, an unjust punishment. Uh, Genesis, maybe 18, God of the earth is, a, the judge of all the earth will surely do what is right. No innocent person suffers from the hand of God. Now, in contrast to this very appalling view of hell, Paul goes on to portray to us an amazing view of, of heaven or glory. Because when Christ comes, we're in verse 10 now. When Christ comes, not, not only will he judge those who reject the gospel, but he also will be glorified in his holy people and be marveled at among all those who have believed. And that includes the Thessalonians. And they have believed when Paul had given his testimony, and they had accepted what Paul had to say. And so Paul is saying a rather phenomenal thing here that you need to be aware of. He's saying that when Christ comes, he will come appearing in all of his glory. Well, you get that. I mean, he's God. He shows up unveiled, and it's going to be awesome in great glory. But that's not all he says here. He says part of his glory will be that he glorifies himself in us that there is this glorifying of us, which then is a reflection of or a testimony to or a display of his glory. When we are glorified, his glory is displayed through us. Anyway, I don't want to linger on that. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness has been revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, when we began this study of, uh, of uh, the, the coming of the Lord, Paul had given us some information that I think would be helpful for us to recap so we get a running start at where we are right now. So first, the, the apostle mentions in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.13 that we should not grieve as those who have no hope because 
those who have died who are Christians are now in the presence of God and they will come with Christ when he returns. And the second point that he wants to make is that when the Lord comes, he says, well, it will be like a thief in the night. In other words, the, the, many people will be caught uh, surprised. They will, they will not be expecting his return. It will, it will t- totally catch them off guard. But, says Paul, that shouldn't be you. You have no reason to be caught off guard. Um, you, have, um, you have reason to anticipate his coming. That's chapter 5, the first verses of chapter 5 verse of chap of the first book um, then he talks about well I guess we're jumping jump now here that when he comes this third point here he comes to uh, repay with affliction those who have afflicted you and to grant relief to you that's the, where we are right now and this should therefore be good news for those who are now suffering persecution but it is terrible news for those who are inflicting the suffering. Now we need to back up a little bit and talk about this imminent return of Christ. Because there's a lot of verses in the Bible which Jesus tells us his, his return is very soon. And one of those verses that people um, go back to is, uh, truly I say to you, there's some standing here who will not taste of death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And they concluded, therefore, that since Jesus said many are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God, they conclude that Jesus has to come in, that, in those people's lifetime. You know what happened? He didn't come in those lifetimes. But then, of course, if you're my age, you remember that when, when Israel was established, they said that started the time clock. And so Jesus has to come in the lifetime of those since 1947, 48, which I don't remember, 48. So that starts the time clock, and Jesus has to come in our lifetime. When a lifetime there was 40 years, that gives, brings us to 1988. Uh, another problem here. Uh, but we have to understand what Jesus was saying to them there. He's not saying that all these signs take place immediately before he returns. His saying here is they see the kingdom coming in its power. So he's talking not about the consummation of his kingdom, but the inauguration of his kingdom. That, a lot of the, that those people then to whom he spoke would not die, some of them would not die, until they see the inauguration in power of the, the kingdom. And what kind of things do you see about the inauguration of his kingdom? Well, then the first three obvious ones are the resurrection, the ascension, and then the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So we see the inauguration of his kingdom and power in those things. You know, there are, there are three common errors that are typically applied when we try to assume when Christ is coming again. And first is that we, init- we expect it um, right away in, in our lifetime. And that's led people of every generation since Christ gave these prophecies to say that he was returning in their time, during their lifetime. And they come up with all different kinds of calculations. We talked about that last week. Everyone who's made a calculation, everyone who's picked a date has been wrong. There's a reason for that. Jesus says, watch therefore because you don't know the day or the hour. And 
The fact is he could come at any time or he could come and it's not in your lifetime. Many of you, most of us probably can't imagine him not coming in our lifetime because we can identify people and events in the newspaper or on, on the news. And the second error associated with the nearness of Christ's coming is that Jesus warned them um, that his coming would be very uh, public, very obvious. And so he says, look, if they say to you, here he is in the inner room, don't believe him. Look, if they say to you, he's out in the wilderness, don't go. Uh, if they say there he is, don't believe it. And he goes on to say that many people will come claiming to be the Messiah, and they'll be able to perform many great signs and wonders. Don't believe them. Don't believe the fact that they say that, that he's here, that you've missed out. Anybody who says that Jesus is here or has been here is wrong. Where is Christ now? Well, physically, he possesses a body like the one standing before you, like your own body. And that physical body is present with God in heaven. His spiritual person is everywhere omnipresent because he's God. That physical body is somewhere, and it's not here. If anybody says he's here on earth or he has been here on earth, I mean, other than the first coming, don't believe it. Because when he comes, he will come physically, bringing that body with him. Christians can have, you know, absolute confidence in that because, Paul goes on to say, that before he physically comes, there will be a cataclysmic chain of events. So don't be fooled when someone says he's here or has been here because you know he's talking to the Thessalonians and I'm talking to you, that certain cataclysmic events have to take place before Jesus comes. But when he comes, you won't have to guess. It will be terribly obvious. As lightning comes from the east and shines to the west, so it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. Now, the third error associated with the nearness of Christ's coming um, has to do with uh, uh, the saying, don't believe if they say to the effect that the Lord already has come, you know, that, that you've missed it, that he came, there was a resurrection, came, there was the arrival, and you've missed out. The, the modern version of that uh, took place when the Jehovah Witness founder, uh, Charles Taze Russell, asserted that the world was going to end in 1874. When that date come and came and went, like all previous dates of anybody who's ever guessed, he changed it to um, uh, 1914. Remember what happened in 1914? The world had begun First World War, and Russell had assumed that uh, this was the beginning of Armageddon. And he predicted that, that the Lord would come. And you know what happened? Nothing. And so he died in 1916, but his, uh, his the guy that followed him, I, uh, what do you say, the, his uh, uh, successor, I can't think of the right word, his successor, by the, this guy by the name of uh, Judge J.F. Rutherford, he asserted, well, you know what? Christ actually did come October 1st, 1914. But what happened was you missed it. Well, he got up from a regular chair that was in the presence of God, and then he went and sat on the throne. So he actually did come, 
and you missed it. Beyond that, they say, so therefore, you should not be looking for the arrival of, uh, of the visible coming of Christ, no, there, nor is there any hope for such a coming. And uh, we know that this is, this is heresy because, once again, the Bible says otherwise. The problem is not new. The Jehovah Witnesses didn't invent this. In fact, Paul addresses a very similar heresy that was going on in Ephesus when he said in 2 Timothy 2.17, that there were men who had swerved from the truth saying that the resurrection has already happened. So Paul asserts, you should know that the coming of Christ has not happened yet. You didn't miss out because there are certain signs, evidences that have to precede the return of Christ. And then he says back to our text here, 2 Thessalonians 2, that's 3 maybe, let no one deceive you in any way for that day will not come unless, one, the rebellion comes first, two, the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now, Paul's making a reference here to the Olivet Discourse. This is a preaching that Jesus did right before he was crucified. And remember, he and his disciples were, were going to the Temple Mount, and the disciples were gawking at the beautiful temple, and Jesus said, you see these things? These are all going to be torn down. This is all going to be destroyed. And they couldn't believe it because it had just been finished, built. And they said, well, tell us, when will these things take place? I'm holding up my first finger. You are listening and not watching. And secondly, what will the signs be of your coming again? And Jesus answers the question in the same order that they were asked. When will this, when will this take place? When will this the destruction of Jerusalem happened, and second, what will be the sign of the, the close of the age? Now, before we consider the signs, we have to make some general observations. First is, it's not always obvious when a sign takes place. It's easy to miss it. In fact, Jesus is, is approached by the Jewish leaders, and they say, give us a sign from heaven, and then we'll believe. And Jesus retorts, you have you see signs, and you miss them all the time. I mean, you know how to interpret the signs of the weather, but you don't know how to interpret the Word of God. You know what that tells us? We should not be so fascinated with determining signs and having signs prove our faith as we should be about, about knowing the Word of God and what God's Word has to say. The Christian faith is not anchored to some extraordinary supernatural sign but in discerning faith that draws from what God says in his word. The Bible is our evidence, not some razzle-dazzle signs. Now, second, he tells us that, there's, that there are different signs. There are some of these signs which are going to occur immediately in these disciples' time frame, and many of these signs actually did take place in 70 A.D. Look at, uh, turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 20. No, no, chapter 21, verse 20. I've got to find it here. Again, the question that they ask first is, what, will, what evidences will there be that the destruction of Jerusalem is to take place? Luke 21, 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that the desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the, in, inside the city depart. Let those not... 
let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these days of vengeance filled with what is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infant in those days, there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against God's people. They will fall on the edge of the sword, leave captive among the nations, Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles. What is he talking about? Talking about the destruction that took place in 70 AD, which helps explain why the church was relatively unscathed by the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Why is that? Because they had this testimony and they believed it. And when the, when the Romans came and surrounded the city, they got out of town. So the church was relatively undamaged by the, the destruction which comes upon uh, Jer Jerusalem. Uh, lost my place here. Moved too many pages. At any rate, uh, so some of the signs had to do with the immediate fulfillment of the prophecy that he's given. Other signs had to do with the interim period, the time between his two comings. And remember, he says, when you see, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, um, see that you're not alarmed, for such things must take place, but the end is not yet. So isn't it interesting that whenever there's a war, a rumor of war, there's everybody who's jumping to the conclusion that Christ must be coming and it must be soon. What does Jesus say about that? This is military activity is not a sign of him coming soon. This is a sign of God's ongoing dealing with mankind. God's judgment against the, the nations is, is not a sign of the end. It is a sign of God's sovereign control. And he specifically says, this is not a sign of the coming of, of the end. Then he goes on to say, verse 3, um, Although these things are not the signs specific to the return of Christ at the end of the age, verse 3, don't be misled. Don't be fooled. Don't be suckered. Don't be misled. And the reason that they shouldn't be misled, first of all, is that he tells them, verse 3, that the first thing that has to happen is a falling away. The word here in Greek is apostasia. You recognize the word apostasy. In the NIV and the ESV, it uses the word rebellion. Before Christ comes, there, need to, there, there has to be this, this apostasy, this rebellion, this, um, this falling away from the faith. This is a very clear allusion to Daniel chapter 11, where Daniel's predicting the end time, and he's predicting about this end time opponent who, uh, who comes, first of all, to deceive the, the people of God, the covenant people, and then to destroy them. This... Uh, end-time opponent will bring about a large-scale compromise of faith among God's people. In order for there to be an apostasy, a rebellion, a falling away, there first has to be a, a believing. You have to believe in God before you can fall away from God. And that simply doesn't apply to the Jews who, by and large, did not believe in Christ, nor the unbelieving Gentiles. He's talking about the covenant people of God who fall away. According to Daniel um, 11, this, I think we're, it's at the end of Daniel 11, maybe 30 to 45 or something. This falling away takes place within the covenant community, and this end-time opponent deceives them. There's this deception. He uses the word smooth words. They forsake the holy covenant. They, they act wickedly towards the covenant. Um, that's what Paul's talking about when he talks about this, this falling away, this, this apostasy. So the Antichrist fools 
the people of God. He deceives them. He leads them away through this deception and compromise. And secondly, then, he turns on those who aren't fooled, who don't fall away, and he persecutes them rather rigorously. This eschatological and antagonist, this uh, fellow, I'm, not, I'm trying to not say antichrist because John's the only one who uses that. But at any rate, this fellow um, openly before the, the covenant community magnifies himself above every god, uh, Daniel 11, 36, um, and then he, he finally meets his uh, God's judicial hands when, when, uh, when Christ comes, and that's where we are back in Paul's teaching in chapter 2, verse 3 through 4. Interestingly, church history is littered by incautious, self-confident, but always mistaken individuals who try to use Daniel chapter 11 or Paul's text that we're looking at today right now and try to identify who this antichrist, who this antagonist is. And again, we should be warned to be more cautious and tentative than others have been. But at the same time, we should not just say, well, we can't figure it out, let's just bail on these texts. Because the text here is written for us to know and to understand. And we need to be cautious, but we don't need to just throw out the text saying it's just too hard. Paul says we should not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. And then he points to many of the, or to two of the evidences that we need to examine before Christ comes. And this is the context that we're going to bring up next week when we talk about more specifically the rebellion, the Antichrist, and the one who restrains him. But this is just meant to be an introduction to that. So next week we'll talk about those things, the rebellion, the Antichrist, and the restrainer. But in concluding this introduction to Paul's teaching on Christ's return, we can draw a couple applications here about um, Christ's return. Uh, and the first is that we can't automatically assume that he's going to come in our lifetime. We may well very, we may very well be mistaken, as every other generation has been before us. In a survey of church history, um, Kim Riddenbarger notes that practically every generation of Christians has been quite certain that Christ must return during their time. Just as Christians were mistaken in the certainty that Christ would come in their time, the same conviction today is mistaken. And yet, this is the part I want to close with, and yet, on the other extreme, we should never assume that Christ is not coming simply because certain signs, signs seem yet to be fulfilled. No one should be so confident of his understanding of the Bible's teaching about the signs that he concludes that Christ could not return in the near future. So what happened to Patrick McManus in his uh, efforts to borrow a hunting, hunting rifle? Well, like I said, he got into Jack's single shot. It was not what he expected. He writes, I rushed home lugging the monstrous firearm, pinned a target to a fence post backed by a sandbank paced off 100 yards and drew a bead on the target. I gently squeezed the trigger. Later, I heard that all the live, livestock within a mile radius sprang two feet up in the air and went darting about in all directions at that altitude. Apples rained down out of the trees in the orchard. Three lumberjacks swore off drink, and two, the, two atheists were converted to religion. My own interpretation of the event was that I had been struck by lightning, a meteorite, or a bomb. 
When my vision cleared, I knew I was in trouble. Not only would my folks be upset about me shooting one of their fence posts in half, but the neighbors would be mad at me for destroying their sandbank. He was too shy to pull the trigger the rest of hunting season, so he didn't get an animal. Maybe you're expecting the coming of Christ in all of his glory, but perhaps you're getting your information about that from somewhere other than God's word. God's word will defend us against any kind of false teaching, not just about the deceptions of the man of lawlessness, but uh, any other kind of scaremongering about the end times and indeed any other thing that contradicts God's word that he's told us in, in the Bible. The scriptures don't tell us all the details about the end times, but they do tell us enough, um, even if it's not what you expected. Um, let's close in prayer. Father, as we um, close these words of proclamation and now as we think about the communion that's before us, we ask you to examine our hearts, to quiet our hearts, help us to sit and enjoy and receive the gift of your grace. Be reminded of the cost to you and bringing it to us. Now we set these things aside, these common elements, and apply them to a sacred use, and we set aside our common lives and apply them to sacred use of bringing glory to your Son, Jesus. I notice that 